Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to www.historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is another of our continuing series on the moves of historical thinking, or what I like to think of as what historical thinking can do for you. For if history is a way of seeing the past, then it is also a way of knowing the past. That means that history can teach habits of seeing and knowing that are useful for everyone, not just historians. Today, we're talking about research, which is an answer to the question, where can I find more evidence? Or perhaps, where can I find more evidence either proves or disproves my argument. We use relevant, significant sources that we find on one's own, in other books, on websites, in archives, etc. And with me to talk about research is Alexandra Mikabridja, professor of European history at Louisiana State University at Shreveport, where he is Ruth Herring Knoll Endowed Chair for the Curatorship of the James Smith Knoll Collection, which, Professor Wikipedia informs me, is one of the largest private collections of antiquarian books, prints, and maps in the United States. Acclaimed as one of the great Napoleonic scholars of today, he was last on the podcast to discuss his book, The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, which remains one of the most popular podcasts we've ever done, and this is his third appearance on Historically Thinking. Alex, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Um, I still can't believe uh, <laughs> that it's, it, it was such a popular episode. And that well, you're very both of them, both the sort of the prequel when you were working on the thing, and then I just yeah, thought yeah. it was fascinating, and then the actual big one. Yeah. So uh, one of the reasons why I wanted you to talk about it, other than that you were like a fan favorite, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is good for the box office, is that... Um, is that uh, I was thinking that uh, late 20th century historians have a completely different life uh, than us. They have a flood. They are drowned in stuff. So I just talked, uh, I just recorded a conversation with, uh, which hasn't yet uh, dropped with Dominic Sandbrook, who's been writing a history of Britain since 1957. Uh, Britain after Suez. He's gotten as far as I think 1982 in like five volumes. And they're like each like three inches thick. They're filled with the Beatles and like pop music and Margaret Thatcher and what Ted Heath did on the piano after they voted for the European common market and what, you know, Richard Nixon thought of Harold Wilson. And, you know, the level of detail is like a little bit ridiculous. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you talk to a classicist and they are very carefully teasing out significance from what yeah. is for us like three or four sentences. But you, us, 18th century, 19th century, are in the sweet spot where people Absolutely. write a lot of letters and there's a lot of material, but it's not crazy and it's not too little. I mean, you must think of this a lot, although we'll get to how Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I, in my own conversation with students, uh, when you know, I, I don't uh regularly encourage students to go into academia as such or pursue their graduate stu- uh, studies but when i support somebody it's usually after i had quite a bit of conversation with them and then i usually nudge out you know where where you want to go you know which which period period and i always tell them those are the things you have to consider yeah. <laughs> you know the availability of sources what kind of sources you uh, uh you're going to deal with uh, so my yeah you uh, we both 
you and me were in a right, I think, period because you have families literate enough to produce um, a ton of uh, uh, written material, but also to survive. Uh, so yes. we're just close enough to that right. uh, legacy for, uh, for it to be still around. And uh, I, I think we, we, you know, we've talked about your research on, on Turnbull family, and uh, I know that sometimes it actually can be overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm writing a, a book on Kutuzov, and that guy, even though the private papers are not as, as uh, you know, is not as, as well of a problem, but his official paperwork, man, it's just. It's amazing. It must be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, right up here, I've got the papers of Nathaniel Green, which are only 13 or 14 volumes. So that's not yeah. bad. Right. Yeah. But when you start to look at the Washington papers or even or the Hamilton or the Madison, we could start to any of these people. Um, exactly. And 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 well, let's, we'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about dealing with the, un, the unedited stuff and why it's important. But what how do you define research when you're presenting it, when you think of it? I, I'm actually curious. One of the things I was thinking about is how we define it differently than when we teach it. So yeah. do you define, how do you define historical research in your head as you're, as you're doing it? Or is it like just the fish for water? Is it like water for fish? You just don't think about it. Yeah. I, mean, I, th I think, I think you're right. And I'll start from the end that it, it comes so natural now after so many years. Uh, but when I, I teach um, uh, every so often uh, methods class and I, I explain to the, our, our up and coming students that, uh, at, at its simplest research is, is the process of creation of new knowledge. Now, mm -hmm. uh, that can be done by discovering new uh, data or new knowledge or by using existing knowledge in some new and creative way. Uh, let's say, you know, the, the, in the last two decades, we have the revisionist narrative of which I'm, I'm I think, part of, where we try new methodologies, new concepts and understanding using already available knowledge. Uh, so research is is really about synthesis and, and analysis of the information that we already have, uh, or the quest for new information. Um, in in our area, I think um, the challenge we we're facing is that there is perception that uh, usually when I when I talk to people and tell them I work on Napoleon, uh, and <laughs> you know, first re our reaction is like. What's there? What's there new to say, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then you sit down and you you explain that it's it's the process of going to archive and, and finding. So research to me is now I think we're at the stage where it's not just about reading a book or two and then you know coming with some synthesis analysis. Now it is it, it, it's it's fundamental of, of going to archives, searching through these tons and tons of documents. And coming to a conclusion that reassesses the uh, existing knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this gets it to a way that people misapprehend research. Um, I've noticed amongst um, popular historians, uh, and I think they understand the the box office success of this approach. They often say, "I found some completely new documents hitherto undiscovered." Mm -hmm. Now, oftentimes, this might not actually be true. Or it might be, yes, you did, but they're not that important. Yes. Or, you know, um, or, okay. But mm -hmm. that is, that I think is the, uh, for most people, research is um, very much in the white lab coat uh, test tubes kind of way. 
where you're discovering new horizons. It's the Hubble Space Telescope. It's discovering galactic yeah. Cussler, yeah. clusters. Yeah. And so it's discovering something entirely new, where, of course, for, for a historian, it's often new to you if you haven't read it before. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's, there's some point where you have to do research just to figure out what um, you have to know. Um, and it's, it's, so it's a different approach than it's not the white, it's not finding completely new horizons, uh, for humanity. It's finding new horizons for yourself. Absolutely. I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, I'm sure you and, you know, many of our listeners who've worked in, in, in this humanities field and maybe had a doctorate, uh, they've, they've, they've have encountered when you introduce, you know, kind of conversation, hey, what do you do? I'm mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm professor and all a doctor. And they were like, but, oh, you like treat something. I'm like, no, 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 not that kind of doctor, right? Because this perception uh, is that the, you know, the doctors are, you know, the medical doctors or scientific doctors, but we are in a different field. And uh, there was a one, you know, kind of joke that a friend of mine was, uh, uh, sharing when the flight attendant announces on the plane, is there a doctor on the plane? And uh, you raise the hand and like, yes, but I'm not that kind of doctor. And the flight attendant says, well, w- hold on a second. The pilots are debating the merits of terminology, of dark ages versus late antiquity. Well, that's, that's a very good oh, question. I am <laughs> that kind of doctor. <laughs> Let me into the cockpit at once. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Let me now share my expertise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're you know, the, the, this is goes, I think, to the issue of the perception of what history is. And I think you're right to point out that there is a kind of popular perception that what we do is read a couple of books and write, write our own kind of uh, works. And it, it, there is, there is um, I think, truth to it because we've, we know that there are popular books that are quite shallow in terms of their uh, grounding. But the area where we work within academic history, um, the the amount of research that you do is, is is just stunning. I mean, for the some of the books you work three, four years uh, just to produce a, a small volume, and, and and to look back and think of how much time it took to produce this uh, 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 this new kind of body of knowledge. Uh, so sometimes let's, you cannot but wonder, right? Is it worth yeah. it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about uh, what your work, because you, um, so you, you've done the the world history of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, so, ten years, ten, ten years, years of my life went on that book. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I want you to express to listeners, um, and we probably talked about this some in the conversation, but not completely. Where did you go for that? Um, what did you have to do? So that one, that book is, um, I think, a little bit unusual from other books I've done because it is both a work of synthesis, uh, uh, since it's such a broad um, work. But in order for me to sharpen some of the arguments I wanted to make, I went to the archives. So I, I went to the British archives, French archives, uh, uh, Austrian, uh, the, uh, the, the war archives, Russian military archives. Because I wanted to see certain aspects uh, of of the things that I was discussing to see whether my my arguments can be again uh, sustained by the evidence um, in the archives, uh, and so the, therefore this book is, is is a kind of double approach. One is synthesizing 
the existing knowledge and, and condensing it in, into uh, into more manageable form, uh, but also using archival research to highlight the you know to to add those accents. When you go to the Austrian archives, could you um, explain what exactly does that mean? Going to the archives and what do you do? How long does it take? Do you know what you're looking for? Do you have have yeah. you done sort of in the old days? we would have sent a letter. <laughs> yeah. It would have taken like six months to a year yeah. to set up um, uh, one of these trips. So how, how does that work? How do you do that now? Um, so I, I did the research in, in two different ways. So one, so you know, in, in um, Austrian case, um, I was, so I went through the, uh, uh, so every archive has published inventories of what they have, or at least what they have uh, as of now, what they have cataloged. Um, and so you can go through the inventories and get a uh, general idea of what is in a specific area uh, in, in a folder. And then uh, when you get there, um, you effectively request the, uh, these folders. Um, I, I remember when I went to a, a French military archive and I went through the inventories and there was this one inventory that uh, dealt with the Napoleonic specific campaign. And I was very excited because the inventory was very broad, but also had this kind of listing of what uh, material was covering in it. And I got I got excited because it was covering this campaign that I needed. Um, and so I went down there and the French archives, just like Austrian archives, uh, or most archives actually has limitations on how many folders you can have per day. Uh, and uh, in, in French case, it's, it's five. Uh, and so five folders. So if you made a mistake yeah, and you got the wrong folder, that's it. It counts. So French. I went, I, I requested this five folders and here it comes and you see this folder. It's, it's indescribable. And I think that's one of the things that you really, it's like a drug, really. Yeah, and they uh, wheel them out the cart. That's right. They wheel them out yeah. and like here it is and you see this dust on them and I think you want to see the dust as a researcher because it gives you this excitement that, hey, it has been a while since somebody looked at it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because if there is no dust, that means it has been used a lot. And yeah. so I opened it. I got these documents. It's all originals. It's all there. Uh, and I started going through it and quickly realized there is a reason why no one used it. <laughs> <laughs> because as we were talking before, uh, before the podcast, it's all about that committee kind of, right? boring behind the scenes uh instructions um but i found that actually quite interesting because as i said i was like well i guess i can't send it back because i already used my uh, <laughs> folder <laughs> quota so i said and I, I actually went through it and uh it i think to me it, it was kind of a serendipitous kind of moment because you realize how much is happening behind the scene in order for the well-known kind of facts to actually take place. So, you know, in military history and political history, we see oftentimes we'll focus on these overt expressions, right? The battles or, mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, or treaties or, or, or diplomatic conferences. But then you get the folders like this where you look behind and you see how much of the negotiations are taking place behind the scenes where these guys are sitting for hours and days at a time and haggling over small minutiae in order for them to sign that uh, document at the end of the big conference. So uh, I think that worked out in, in my favor, even though it was tedious, mm -hmm. uh, it, it still has that, you know, you can find, you can go through a, mo a mountain of evidence to find a nugget, but that mm -hmm. nugget might be well worth it. 
Um, at what point in when, let's say, in the French archives, let's stick, stick with that point. Where were you in your overall uh, workflow, uh, for lack of a better, more elegant term? I mean, is this, I mean, there's because there's going to be research even done prior to developing an argument or developing a thesis statement. Yes. And then there's going to be research afterwards. Um, and uh, how does that work out for you? Do you conceive of them differently? I mean, it, what, w w how are they psychologically different? Is your approach different before you've um, synthesized or before you finalize your argument, you're develop, you're doing things differently perhaps than you are afterwards. Um, so I think this is where um, it's both exciting and frustrating in, in the mm -hmm. sense that research is never really done. So you start research, you do research, you come with some understanding of, of, or you think you come to some understanding and you do some research and you realize that that understanding needs more nuance. You go and gather more archival research and that might actually shape your understanding even more. And that's where I, I've, uh, I think, experienced is that you do the preliminary research based on, on ex published sources. Now those published sources, uh, oftentimes are not based on archival resource, research, at least in the Napoleonic area. That's one of the kind of d uh, downsides is that there's a lot of things that have been written about this period, but not necessarily based on the archival re research. So once you have that base, uh, this which, is, I, which I may say is just kind of crazy. This is yeah. and this this is also why you can still do new things about the Napoleonic era because Absolutely. we're just retelling secondhand stories, uh, which we have to peel back like an onion to see if there's actually some ground truth in them by going to yeah. the archives. Absolutely, and in fact, I'll give you a very simple um, uh, example. Um, Russians um, until 1917 were using Julian calendar. Uh, we know that the rest of Europe has switched to Gregorian calendar and, and you know, after, after the great reforms, calendar reforms in 16th century. Uh, but sometime at the beginning of the 20th century, somebody, uh, and I haven't traced that somebody yet, uh, I know how it was repeated, but somebody said that uh, Napoleon's great victory in 1805, Austerlitz and all that is attributed in parts to the fact that Russians and Austrians, when they were talking, they somehow dropped the ball and didn't understand that Russians were meeting dates uh, in Julian and this guy's Gregorian and there is 11 day difference. Uh, and I, I I was really puzzled by this. I'm like, come on, these people are smart. How, how could have they just done this kind of thing? And so when you go to the archives, you see that it's completely bogus. It's, I mean, they wrote specifically, Russians dated their documents in both Julian and Gregorian calendar just to make sure they, they don't screw up. Um, and uh, the archival, if you do, you know, if you've seen those original sources, it, it's clear. But if you haven't, then you can make this kind of, uh, lame, um, it's it's a fancy, you know, fanciful account. It's kind of striking account. It really jumps at you, like oh my god, those people they couldn't even figure out that there are two different calendar systems, right? Uh, but it's, the research, it, it is literally. It turned out to be literally one of those things. Story is too good to check. Yeah, yeah, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's um, and 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 that's the kind of very basic um, example, of course. Uh, the, there is a separate thing to be said about interpretations, uh, about assumptions, about motives that historians are guided by in their research, which you, unless you are 
again, in, involved in the archival res research are oftentimes based on, uh, on primary sources, which will be like memoirs or letters, which we know are very subjective. Even, even you know, there is an interesting debate that you probably followed about the uh, uh, subjectivity of the archives as such, right? What is preserved in the archives? How it is preserved? What is the access to it? Uh, and I think that goes to the very heart of what is a historic hi history as a profession of historical research as such, is that are we really free of bias? And I'm, I, I'm convinced that we're not, that we all have a certain right bias. And no matter how much we try, uh, you know, we, we reflect subject, you know, subjectively, we reflect our interpretation of history. So none, you know, none of my books are, um, you know, objective in that sense. I try to, but I know that this is my interpretation. And that's, uh, I think, what is oftentimes forgotten, that history at its essence is about interpretation of, of, of facts. Uh, and that interpretation varies. In fact, you know, there is a whole field of historiographic studies that uh, show you how this interpretation changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and even today, I mean, think about how we disagree on, on, on the reassessment of historical figures or the need to commemorate or not to commemorate some of the historical uh, events and, and individuals. Um, you know, we are right now finishing the bicentennial of Napoleon, and I've been involved in enough debates on was Napoleon, uh, uh, you know, does he deserve to be commemorated the way we do, right? Mm -hmm. Is, was he a good guy or bad guy, quotations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that's all based on historical interpretation. But in order to have a good grasp of facts and in order to have a good understanding of what you're arguing, I think, to me, archival research is fundamental. So uh, just a practical question. How do you go about... Um, how, how, I mean, you're a young guy. I'm not, we're not old men, but, <laughs> uh, but in the last uh, 20 or 30 years of our, since we started doing this, the yeah. way that it's amazing to me how much our research task has changed. I had Bill Caffaro on talking about question and thesis. Uh, he's a medieval Italianist. He's about yeah. mm, 10 years. He's in, probably in his, in his 60s. Uh, you can't, he's, he's eternally youthful. You're eternally youthful, Bill. Um, but he still <laughs> persists in using a mechanical pencil in like the Sienese archive. And he might be the last one, except for some 85 year old uh, eminent yeah. Italian historian down yeah. the table from yeah. him. Uh, this thing, the smartphone that I'm waving in the camera has made the ability to scan documents has made research trips so much cheaper. We don't have to camp out for three months, no. you know, right down the street from the archive. Um, yeah. We don't have to know. Well, we still have to know. Like I had a professor who knew the best curry shop near every British county archive. Um, <laughs> that This is important stuff. But you still have to know that. But the, it, it's changed the way we do business. Now, sometimes let, not for the best because you say you, not, you take that you don't take a good scan of what turns out to be something really important that you wish you could read. But. Mm -hmm. uh, the mechanics of doing research has changed a lot. I, I You're absolutely right. Them. And I think I kind of feel bad about it in the sense that, you know, I talk, <laughs> I talk to my major professor all the time and uh, he would tell me this story when he was doing research in 60s and 70s and the, uh, the, the things he had to do. And then I would tell him, I, I, in fact, I moved away from the high, uh, for smartphone. I have this gadget about this big. It's uh, the size of a lunch, lunch kind of, you know, the lunchbox. Oh. And it opens, it flips up, it's like L-shape, 
and it's a, it's a portable scanner. So I just shove the document underneath, and second, it, it creates a well, PDF. In fact, well, it can string them. We'll have to put a link to that in the show. Notes. So <laughs> it's the best, the, the best the, hundred dollars I spent. Mika Parija endorses. Last trip, and I went to uh, you know, in, in last trip I went was in uh, to the French diplomatic archive. I brought uh, close to twelve thousand documents. I mean, it's just, good grief, yeah. It, it, but you're right in that it it creates uh, kind of greediness. You know, yeah, you want yeah. to, like swoop everything, uh, and uh, um, it has downside to it because you you bring back so much material that it, it, it's really daunting to go through it. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you have it. See, it's on my hard drive. In fact, right this morning before you came on, I was going through uh, some of the British uh, Foreign Office documents that I have and, and just rereading. Or, you know, try, I'm trying to trace this great document I found where they didn't just write uh, kind of uh, horizontally, but for the sake of saving papers, they did it um, sideways too. And it's a crisscross. It's a weird kind of way of uh, keeping the... Uh, of, of saving the papers and, and conveying mis information, I can't find w which archive I came across it. But the, the fact that you have it on your hard drive is certainly is saving you. But you're right; uh, that's one way. Of course, we also have softwares now. I don't know how many of your listeners are using it software, but I know some, both me and my my, my friends, are so we're using different kind of software to keep it all um, organized in. Uh, it, it certainly helps that the fact that now we have ebooks, and I have on on my hard drive uh, thousands of ebooks that I can search several. You know, just put in a keyword, and it pops up uh, all the citations in the, in the ebooks that I, I need. Those things save enormous amount of time, which allows you, I think, to concentrate more on the analytical part, on the interpretation parts, and less searching for nuggets. And and, uh, and more on on, mean, on on finding where those nuggets fit in in a larger mountain mm -hmm. that you're trying to paint. How, I mean, let's talk about software. Um, I I talked about many times on the podcast. I use Zotero, uh, which yes. uh, um, uh, which basically has saved my life many times um, as a as a sort of source um, uh, provider. But there, this was, and I, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, George Mason University, the Rosenzweig um, Center for History and New Media came out with it originally. I think it's now part of a sort of independent corporation. I, I, I take it you used Zotero from your um, yes. agreement. Mm -hmm. And uh, what else do you find useful um, to keep organized research? So I have, um, 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 I can't remember on top of my head the uh, name of the software I use for ebooks, but there is, uh, I, I, can, I can send it to you after, after, mm -hmm. the, after our meeting, but there is a software that allows me to uh, essentially uh, catalog every ebook that I have, and I have thousands of them, both mm -hmm. in PDF and e in EPUB uh, format, uh, which are searchable. And, and that software is really uh, great because it, it uh, keeps it all in one place, and I can, I can uh, cross-reference or cross-search cross them all at once. I use um, uh, note-taking softwares. Uh, in a for, for me, the, base, the, the simplest one is still um, Microsoft Word. I keep all my notes in, in, in a Word file. 
uh, which I found I find the simplest way of, of doing it. It's funny. Know? Do you are you keeping them all in one? Uh, Dermot McCullough, uh, who's the uh, eminent uh, church, early church uh, church historian, Reformation yeah. historian, he once told me he just keeps them all in one word document, which I almost fell off my. Uh, I couldn't believe that this was. Uh, you do you do the same, don't you? You just have I, one long like uh, thousand page document. And you just show, <laughs> no, uh, I, I divided my tablets. Like so. <laughs> okay, okay, I divided my tablets. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's one of the things I complain about. And uh, I'm finishing a, a new biography right now, a biography of, of Field Marshal Kutuzov. And it took me a couple of years now. But it's almost done. I'm writing the epilogue. And You're my supposed wife, to be work, working on a book about the Louisiana Purchase. So Kutuzov is going to Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I do the background research for that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I haven't started you got, you've writing. got them going simultaneously. I got yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, a, I have a schedule for every kind of day. I know what I'm going to be doing. Oh, for that day, uh, or at least the project that I'm going to be working on. And I have um, Isaac Asimov, you know, the great sci-fi writer, had that really simple but good advice. I'm sure you're following it, that you know, no matter what, you got to produce, you know, this many words. And you can set yeah. whatever the words is for you, what, what's doable for you. For me, 500 is what I'm, I'm always aiming. Every day, no matter what, how much, you know, how depressed or how tired or exhausted I am with, with two kids and all the events they are in. Um, I always try in the evenings to sit down and, and produce 500 good words. Oh, in the evenings, huh? Yeah, yeah, in the evenings, huh? Yeah. You're an so evening I'm guy. Like, I, I, well, I'm, I'm over a night guy because my, my kids go to bed, dinner's done. I start around 10, and I usually uh, stay up until 2.33, um, reading, doing writing, doing, you know, revising the existing research, and then... Jeez, what are you, undergraduate? I mean, that's that's, that's <laughs> you're too old for that kind of two thirty in the morning kind of stuff. Yeah, but, no, uh, to me, this yeah. is you know, I have I have this amazing owl. owl uh, yeah. Actually, there are two different species, and they talk at night around one yeah. o'clock. And it is such an amazing experience when you're riding and you see them ooing and <laughs> it's quiet. No one is bothering me. It's me and my thoughts and owls. <laughs> so, and, and so you're doing the, I, I, I guess what has been lost by using these technical tools. The one thing would be, Kafaro would say is, is um, when people came up with, is the ability to think through with your pencil, what you're reading. I, I can see that as a, when we Hoover the stuff up, uh, with our scanners, uh, we come back to them later, having often forgotten the context in which we originally read them, and we haven't thought through them. There's something to be said for going slowly through the documents with a pencil and thinking, okay, what does this mean? And what does I, this I mean? I don't see that way. I'm trying to find a downside yeah. since I, I, I find this very positive and my, my pencil notes are always, always stunk. And they never they never reproduced what I wanted them to. But I can see that there's a point to thinking through things. Um, uh, you know, the way I look, and actually I'm, right now I'm just looking at the archive. So from uh, from the last, uh, from from the, not the last, but the, the one before trip, I brought back and it shows me 8,391 documents. <laughs> now, I would not have been able to sit through uh, over the next, you know, the few days I had, uh, you know, I, I spent, I usually spend about a week at the archive at a time. Uh, and so I don't think I would have been able to just read thoroughly through 8,000 plus documents over you know, that period. Uh, but what allows me is to bring all of this here, sit down and at my own steady pace, yeah. uh, read and analyze it. 
I know a, a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Kenneth Johnson, who is working on the um, Napoleon's Navy, uh, reassessing Napoleon's naval strategy during this entire period. I know he's he's spent uh, month and month working in the naval archives, scanning documents. He brought tens of thousands of documents, and he has been over ten years now that he steadily is going through it at the at, in a, in, a, in, a, in essentially privacy of his home. And I don't think you would be able to delve in so deeply into the documents if you are just in the archive. So I think there is, to me, this is an advantage. What, the you can say, I, I mean, the, those are the studies that were done by aged French professors who lived very close to the naval archives. That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, right. it was being possible for anyone else to do it. You know, yeah, that's no, where you had to live down near the street. The, uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, the downside is just simply the amount of information you bring. Uh, that's the downside. Yeah. Is that because you you are taking a, you know like a mantra ray, big mouth, kind of swoop everything in and then figure out, filter it through, right? That's the blue um, whale. The blue whale approach blue to whale, research. Yeah, blue whale. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the, that is daunting. And then that's you know while talking to my you know the, uh, Professor Johnson, I was asking you know are you close enough to finishing the book and. I, you know, he tells me not because I understand the amount of material you need to consume is 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 vast for the very reason that now you can afford it, you can have it at, at, on your hard drive and and slowly go through it. Um, but but again, that that requires patience and kind of pacing yourself, uh, which which is frustrating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What uh, is that? How do you teach research exercises when you do the method, when you teach a methods class? Um, is there any way, um, what I've learned with American students is, and, and maybe it was different in the Soviet Union, but um, the <laughs> back when I was a lad, our idea of research was grabbing the World Book Encyclopedia off the, uh, or and probably the Soviet equivalent, uh, off the shelf, and then scribbling some stuff down and calling it research. <laughs> and I, I find that that has prevailed even in the era of the internet. You know, it's uh, collecting some stuff uh, wherever the source and putting them down on paper is research. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. And um, and that is a really hard thing to overcome. Uh, it's uh, it, by the time they get to college, by the time they're 19, this has become a very this is very engraved in them. This is how I go about doing research. I, you know, put down some things uh, in more or less sequence. Um, what you're right what, no. how, just yesterday now just yesterday i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm teaching uh, i'm teaching the graduates uh well graduate seminar and i'm teaching uh a graduate course on the wars of religion mm -hmm. and uh um the assignment was to do the right you know research paper one of the assignments is a research paper and they were supposed to send me a bibliography yesterday and so they sent me a bibliography and you look at the bibliography and they would put things like you know, encyclopedia of this, or there was one bibliography that had three books of timelines. I was like, timelines, three of them? <laughs> what are you doing with three different books of timelines? <laughs> How useful are they really? And so you have to go back and to try to explain, you know, the, the thinking behind putting the sources in bibliography, right? And then, and that's what historical, uh, you know, the methods class that we're teaching is, well, at least trying to, right? Trying to, mm -hmm. to convey that idea is the basics of research. And part of the assignments I have in, in those, in, in those uh, methods courses to, I send them to library to identify specific type of uh, source 
and then find specific number of them. So I'll say, okay, here are mm -hmm. the primary sources, and this is what kind of top primary source exists. Now go to the library or to special collection, to the null collection that I'm curating, and find me five of each, right? So five memoirs, so five diaries, five whatever. Um, and and it, 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 uh, it, so most of them do well, some of them struggle, but it's, it's a slow process. And you're right that by the time they reach us, right, in high school, and maybe high school is not the place really to inculcate maybe that. It, it, it's the expectation is, as you mentioned, that, hey, I can slap that kind of, you know, couple of encyclopedias here, Wikipedia, and, and I have a, I have a mm -hmm. research paper. That's a, that's a research paper, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the first problem is, is that research papers then rarely are, have an argument. Um, yes. They're about, like, let me tell you about something. Yeah. Uh, and that's, of course, not a research paper. And that's not an argument. Um, and then when you've got that, then you just sort of collect I, mean, I wrote research papers like this as a freshman. Uh, you yes. just collect yeah. facts like a magpie that are generally related yeah. around, say, the British Empire and the telegraph system or something like that. That's right. I, I don't know. You know. That's right. Um, um, I'm teaching the graduate seminar for the master's degree students, and we've been dealing with you know Quintilian uh, and, and early kind of thinkers about what education is about, what research is about. And that's the exact problem I had with them is that the first essays, then they have to write this series of essays. Um, uh, the first couple of essays was re were reports. And I, 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 we went through it and we discussed what's the difference between an essay as such, the way Mont you know, Montaigne envisioned it, and, and what is a report. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. the, the collection of facts is a good thing to have, but it's not mm -hmm. really useful unless you actually analyze it. And, and, but it's a process, and that's what I enjoy really dealing with students is that seeing them understand it and you know the first essay maybe not good second maybe so so but by the third and fourth you see them improving mm -hmm. and as you said i remember when i came to united states and i wrote my first paper my god that that thing <laughs> i was I, mean, I was close to going back to professor and saying i'm quitting i mean <laughs> like, well, that's funny I had, because we... I had that conversation with him when he was like, this yeah. is not acceptable. <laughs> well, that's funny because we, before we started recording, I was saying I, I hadn't realized you already had a law degree uh, from Germany. And so you already had that law degree and you were saying how that you saw that the legal work um, often relates to history work. So you had a good foundation in a way of, of developing uh, facts to build a case to support an argument. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think uh, Guy Labedouet, read a great uh, French historian, once said that, you know, historians come in two broad categories, the the gliders who are gliding over the surface and they look at, every, at everything from the high vibe and the truffle pigs who are searching <laughs> for that. I'm a very good truffle pig. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love the research. I love finding nuggets. But uh, that doesn't mean that you're a good writer. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that was the challenge I faced in the beginning is I could, uh, you know, I have great memory. I can I can recite these facts, but putting them in, in, them in cohesive manner, it took it took a, a lot of work, I think, to 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 reach where I am. And I'm still uh, I'm still a, a beginner in that sense. At least I look at myself and every time I get my edited chapters from from, you know, the editor, I realize how much more I have to learn. But um, but as long as you have that desire to uh, to improve and kind of uh, learn uh, from others, mm -hmm. what I do is for the fun of it, I read books that are way beyond 
my uh, expertise uh, by the scholars that are good writers. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm reading Gordon Wood's uh, Empire. You know, I've finished uh, his Empire and Liberty. I've read, uh, uh, you know, uh, William Mac- uh, Manchester's biography of Churchill uh, just for the reason to see how they structured the arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is both kind of to enlighten myself, but not necessarily in a historical sense, but in enlighten how historians who are far better uh, at what they do than me, how they've done it. Mm-hmm. And it is a very rewarding task, uh, especially if, if you are not writing in a language that you are very proficient in. So, I, you know, English is my third language. So <laughs> it, it, it has taken me quite a while to get to the level of proficiency, <laughs> which is... Uh, yeah which is a, a constant uh, endeavor. But it's like, actually, it's, isn't it your fourth language? I mean, because you, you grew up with two. I, uh, yeah, well, um, so I was born and raised, you mentioned you, I was born and raised in Soviet Union and uh, yeah. uh, my mother, my native tongue is Georgian, of course, Russian would, uh, was the language I started speaking as soon as, as Georgian. But then in, uh, in Soviet schools at the beginning level, I think I was in third grade when they started teaching you foreign languages. Mm-hmm. So I started with English. And then by the time I got okay, to the third, seventh yeah. grade, I uh, got a French. So by the time I was finished high right. school, uh, I was already... Then you went on for German. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, German never clicked. Never clicked yeah, with German. Yeah. <laughs> know, maybe that harshness of sound. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one last question we talked about. I mean, there's a lot of things. You, you, you described some great archival experiences, uh, great research experiences. What's the hardest research experience you ever had? I, I would imagine it's like the experience of the gold miner who keeps on yeah. panning in the stream and, and comes up. Yeah. And that, You're absolutely right. I think that's, but to me, that's also, this is, again, it's, a, it's I take great joy in, in this experience, the search mm-hmm. for it, the quest for it, the excitement of, uh, I can, you know, the excitement of finding documents that you know were handled by the people that you're writing about. Um, I remember in the French diplomatic archive, I got a stash of documents with barely broken seals, uh, mm-hmm. you know, private correspondence between the general and his family. And just to have this feeling of holding it and realizing that you might be one of the few people since the letter was written to hold it, right? The connection mm-hmm. that it breaks, it, it, it's all f- both frustrating, but also very rewarding. I was, uh, I was, one of the, the highlights of my research is I found a, a manuscript that was considered lost for a better part of, you know, two centuries. And to find it uh, put, uh, you know, kind of mislabeled and put in the wrong place, uh, it, it's that thing, I mean, that blew my mind. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's one of the things, I, I wrote a little, essay, very short essay about this, uh, is that uh, archives are always changing. Uh, people don't realize that every time it's this, this is this is the Heisenberg uh, principles applied to archives. Every time we touch it, we damage it, we alter it, yeah. um, and uh, we can't. It, things are always changing as we yeah. touch them. Um, they can't, and and then God knows, archives are you know always being remodeled, and they're always and sometimes the classification systems are necessarily changed. Uh, because they, you know, the London Library still insists on spelling Korea with a C, I guess, because, <laughs> but if they change it, if they change it, they would lose something. They would lose books, probably. You know, every time you change a classification system, something falls through the, the cracks of classification. So that's uh, you know, part of the frustration. 
the book, the, for the kudos of book, I reached out to Lithuanian uh, state archives, uh, and they still use the imperial, Russian imperial system of classification. So I was looking back <laughs> from the late 19th century and I'm tracing those documents that were cited by the Russian historians in late 19th century and are saying, hey, is this still the same uh, classification? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, we changed the name of the archive, but the classification actually stays the same. So you right. see that kind of longevity of it. But within the folders or cartons or however, you know, each, each archive has its own kind of name for it, you really don't know what you will find because you might be the first one to pay attention to the fact that this letter doesn't belong to, 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 to this uh, group of letters and, and, and re-ask, you know, point out that it needs to be removed and, and, and placed somewhere else. So you're absolutely right that the archives are constantly... Uh, refreshing themselves in, in that sense. You know, it's a, and I have enormous uh, respect for the archivists, especially yes. of the old mold who've inventoried all these items. Uh, it's stunning the, the amount of work they've done. Mm -hmm. um, uh, final question. Uh, we've touched on this a little bit before. Um, how do you know when you're done? You don't. Um, in <laughs> fact, um, that's a thing. That's a thing is um, the... The joy and, and the curse of it. Uh, f uh, my my colleague um, uh, uh, here at, at Louisiana State University, uh, Professor Gary Joyner, always tells me that, and he's a very prolific writer of his own right. That in embarking on the project is like getting yourself in a relationship, and in, it's a long commitment. You don't know where that relationship will go, right? You might be passionate to fair with that. Uh, project, or you might end up, end up in divorce, but you know the it's you never really give up on it. Um, this is where I am in my own. This new book is, I you know my wife uh, teased me you know uh, for the past several months because I would I started with a proposal that would had twelve chapters, <laughs> and soon enough it was fifteen chapters, and then it was eighteen chapters, and now I was. Just the other day, I was like, man, that one chapter now turned into four because as you start writing and you realize, oh, my God, this needs to be exigent. So now I'm up to 29. Mm, and that's good. 29 chapters. A, yeah, prime number. And, so that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure that if, if I have enough, you know, if I am giving time, which the publisher is not giving me, which is a good thing. If yeah. I had to give time, more time, I would have continued to write and research. Uh, if the book that you mentioned, when I look at that book and on Napoleonic Wars, I, I am, I'm sure you will like it, is I see the, the flaws, really, more than the strength of it. I see the places where I, I think I could have done better, uh, places where I think with more time I could have fleshed out the argument. And it is all close to 1,000 pages now, and I'm like, man, I could have done more here. Uh, but it's it's never ending uh, project. Um, but you need to know, I think, when to, when to walk away. Uh, even even when you think it's not ready for it, you have to at certain point say, okay, this is as good as it probably will get, without me in, in, engaging in an you know this point in an endless uh, quest for for truth, which is what we do. Uh, both you and me and, and all our colleagues are trying to make a better sense of what it is that makes uh, history relevant to us. And I think that's how I looked at law as well, is that law and history, 
they both touch the practical aspects of life at, at every point. Uh, there is no relation in life. There is no transaction among the people that is not, well, it may not become the subject of, of legal kind of investigation or historical <laughs> perspective. And human experience is, is about the complexity. I always tell students that it's never about black and white. Never. It's always full of this uh, long grayish spectrum, uh, which makes our work looking back and trying to figure out how grayish things were mm. uh, uh, such more uh, uh, both complex and rewarding because humans are so, so subtle and full of, of so many different angles that it, it never really ends. Yeah, my, that's, that's beautiful, Alex. And thank you so much for once again, for the third time being part of Historically Thinking. Um, you're very close to getting a, a, the, uh, the, the five meeting coffee cup. <laughs> well, <laughs> I look forward to it. Soon we'll be talking about Kutuzov. So, yeah, right. so, good. yeah. Right. listeners, you better like it. You better subscribe it. <laughs> <laughs> I need that cup. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting.